Hey everyone, welcome to the Park Hill Church podcast. This is Evan Wickham, and I am one of the leaders here at Park Hill Church. And this is uh, kind of like the season finale, I guess, <laughs> of the God breathed interview series that we've been doing to enrich our, our teaching series that we've been doing on Sundays, which is all about how the Bible can be trusted. And we're relearning how to read and trust this library of ancient documents that is also. Um, the place where God has chosen to reveal Jesus to His church for millennia, the Bible. And so, uh, learning to read it and trust it well is kind of the topic of our fall as a church, the fall season. And we've been doing these interview series to, to en enrich it on the side. And we have with us today um, uh, one of my dear friends uh, and just, uh, I don't know that he, uh, he's a mentor of mine, even though he's also a friend. John Mark Comer is here. Hey, John Mark. Hey, I'm certainly not your mentor, but I am your friend. And as cheesy as it is, I feel like we need to go like old school monastic and just brother Evan, brother John Mark, just the sister, whoever. Yeah, like well. We, we may need to bring that back. I love that. I mean, your influence on me is hard to overstate. And uh, But before we get into the interview, I just want to put in a plug for Christmas Eve. Uh, this this year is our sixth anniversary as a church. So Christmas Eve Christmas Eve is our sixth birthday. Didn't you start on Christmas Eve? Wasn't that your first service? That's, that's why, yeah, it's our birthday. It's Park Hill's birthday, sixth birthday, uh, December 24th, Sunday. And it was a Sunday when we started. So... Um, we're kind of, I jokingly say, we're bringing the band back together. Uh, my little bro, Phil, is going to come and sing a bunch of Christmas songs, and we're going to be outside on the lawn, North Promenade, one service at 10 a.m. Christmas Eve. We're in San Diego, John Mark. We can do an outside morning oh, <laughs> Christmas. Unbelievable. In t-shirts, most likely. <laughs> yeah, this is not Portland. This is San Diego. Praise God. And we're going to be uh, North Promenade, right by Stone Brewery. Uh, I think there's a Christmas tree we'll be under, which Liberty Station puts up, which will be really nice. And we'll just sing. And, uh, and speaking of the Bible, Jeremiah writes about as being pagan and demonic. So, oh, the Christmas tree. That. This is mm -hmm. why we. This is why we have you on, John Mark, to deconstruct <laughs> the Christmas tree. No, uh, so that's the Christmas Eve announcement. Hopefully, um, you can you can show up and and get ready to celebrate the incarnation of God among us. And there'll be a gospel presentation, bring friends, all that. So, but here's, here's the plan for today. I'm going to ask you, John Mark, a bunch of questions similar to what I've been asking a lot of the distinguished guests that we've had on this series. Um, and we'll just see what happens. You did not read the questions ahead of time. Is that I right? I did not. Well, just not because I was being lazy, because I did not know there were questions. Well, that's because um, I sent them to you within the last hour. Um, but you've been traveling. So, this is, this is John Mark in the raw, uh, which is awesome. So, here, so, so here we go. Dangerous. It's going to be great. So, um, here we go. I want to start here. Uh, you have an eye to culture in a way that a lot of people uh, have, have appreciated in a big way, the way that you're able to kind of synthesize a lot of strands of what's going on today and and preach the way of Jesus through it all, cutting through the noise of the right and the left. So I want you to first speak to our church and beyond. Um, speak to people who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus well, uh, but culture is noisy. So 2024 is election year and all of that. How do we prep to follow Jesus faithfully in a moment that's going to want us on the right and on the left? How do we keep our wants focused on Christ? What would you say to that? Hmm. I think it's so beautiful that you as a community are keying in to scripture and asking good questions, hard questions, thoughtful questions, important questions. And I think it's really important to map yourself onto the right part of scripture. So when it comes to the culture wars or political engagement, this is an area where followers of Jesus do not agree. There are different... Um, interpretations of scripture from different communities of Christians at different places in church history in different parts of the world. And, you know, N.T. Wright has that kind of five-part schema of scripture as a five-act play. Help me out here, Evan. Mm. I'm just riffing off the top of my head. But part one is creation. 
Part two is fall, right? Part three is Israel. Mm-hmm. Part four is the church. And part five is new creation. So imagine like a, he's very British and posh. So he goes to plays likely more often than the average Park Hill attendee or I do. I'm a little bit more Netflix than Broadway. But um, in his in his schema of kind of a way of thinking about the overall story of the Bible, the library of scripture, what theologians call the meta-narrative, he writes that part four is where we're living. We're living in, you know, the church. So creation, fall, Israel, church, new creation. We're living in part four. And in his imagination, imagine you have the opening scene of the fourth act and you have the closing scene, but the middle part you don't have and it's improv. So Hmm. the book of Acts and the New Testament is scene one of act four. It's the beginning of this act of the church of Jesus in this unfolding story of God in the cosmos. And the revelation, the return of Jesus is the closing scene. We know where the story is going to the new Jerusalem. Um, We live in between. And so we're like an improv actor and an improv actor, you you have to fit into the story as it's been told so far. So you can't deviate hard right, hard left. It has to make sense inside this unfolding story. It has to move the story forward. And it has to land where the story is going. Uh, and it has to look and feel like the story. But other than that, it's there's a creative adaptation that comes. I love so, that. The, the question for us when we think about an election year is, are we at the part of the story where you're Isaiah or Jeremiah in the decline of Israel right before the exile? Is that our template for how we engage with the wider world? Or are we Paul in Rome or Ephesus or Corinth or the writer of the Revelation on Patmos writing about Uh, a city that he simply calls Babylon. And I am very much of the ilk, and I think, Evan, you and I share some similarities here, although maybe not. I think one of the questions I just saw is, where have your views changed? I don't even know what the current status of Evan's view is on this. But there are different Christian traditions that map themselves differently onto... The question you're asking here is, what is the relationship of the church to the wider culture? So I was chatting to our our mutual friend, John Tyson, recently about a very famous Christian that we both used to love. He's written some brilliant, very intellectual books. And then over the last couple of years through the Trump presidency has gone very hard right, very pro-Trumpian and very noisy about the whole thing. So it's very, very noisy. This is the end of America. America's a Christian nation. It's falling apart. It's the end of the world. Those kind of kind of vibes. Mm -hmm. And John made a great comment. He said, it's so hard for people like that who genuinely believe that America is a Christian nation founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and that liberal democracy is dependent, I think this part is right, is dependent on self-mastery, self-governance. You have to self-govern yourself before we can together govern a nation. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the loss of the the moral compass of the Judeo-Christian worldview and the loss of human beings' capacity to self-govern along the moral guidelines of that view means basically the end of Western civilization as we know it, blah, blah, not blah, 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 so on and so forth. If that's your theological rubric for the church's relationship to the state, then basically the Christian job is to keep Western civilization from falling off the edge of a cliff. And um, that may be the right way to think about it. Uh, That's not how I think about it. And if that is how you think about it, man, you must not get great sleep at night (laughs) because (laughs) saving Western civilization seems a little bit beyond most of us and certainly beyond our Instagram accounts or or Sunday morning sermons. And I want to give respect to that view because there are some really, I mean, some of the best thinkers of Western civilization have been, starting with Augustine, and then tracing that lineage forward have been, you know, at some version of that view. But um, if you adopt a more Anabaptist, if you want to call it that view, that's, that draws a harder distinction between the people of Jesus and the nation state that is America, 
then it frees you up to imagine yourself not as Isaiah or Jeremiah, who has a prophetic responsibility to keep Israel back from exile, but as Paul walking around Athens and in the city of Rome, or the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, knowing he's going to his death, but they are not trying to save the Roman Empire from its decline, which happens you know, in the decades to come. They're trying to form an alternative to the Roman Empire, an alternative society, a kingdom of God. I mean, Scott McKnight's work around the kingdom of God, I still don't know if I agree with it or disagree with it, but it's so provocative. He disagrees with the common, what I grew up being common for me, view of the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. It's the active rule and reign of God. So anywhere that God's will is done, that's the kingdom of God. He'd say, no, the kingdom of God is based on the Old Testament people of Israel. It is a people. It's almost synonymous with the church of Jesus. It is a people in a place living by a Torah or a teaching or a way of life under the mm. rule and the reign and the love of God in communion with God and one another. And if you think about the kingdom of God, certainly it is a society of peace and justice and love where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the community of Jesus, call it the church, call it something else, that Jesus is forming, that is to be, in my view, and I offer this with genuine, I could be wildly off here, and maybe I need to get on Twitter and start screaming at all the people ruining America, or not. No, um, not. But no, I think... Yeah, there's no, I have no intention. That's not, I'm not on Twitter. So it's not going to, I'm not on Sorry. any of it. Sorry, so go ahead. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But maybe I need to do that. I don't know. I mean, I want to give genuine respect to people that really think Christians need to be a much louder voice in the public sphere. And mm -hmm. um, my view is, I mean, we just moved to LA and it's so helpful because LA self-identifies as Babylon. Like that's one of its own nicknames for really? itself. And it's so clear when you're somewhere like LA or Portland, this is not a Christian nation. This never was a Christian nation. This is, it's literally Babylon, you know, which is what I think the writer of the Revelation, as he's writing about Babylon as the archetype for all mm -hmm. human empires from the Roman Empire to the Ottoman Empire, to the American Empire, to the British Empire. It's Babylon, and it's a mixed bag. That doesn't mean that there are not wonderful fruits. I mean, Tom Holland's work in Dominion around the Christian ethos of Western civilization is inarguable. So many of the best things that we take for granted. I mean, he argues that prior to Jesus, the ancient world, Eastern, Western, African, anywhere, there is no antecedent, not one, anywhere in the ancient world for the moral view that it is wrong for the strong to prey on the weak. That is right. literally, does not exist other than in the Hebrew prophets prior to Jesus. And now, no matter so how powerful. secular somebody is or atheistic somebody is, it is the moral assumption of the Western world that human rights is the baseline of a society and that it is wrong for the strong to prey on the weak. Now, we don't live up to that very well. But man, the fact that it's built into the ethos of the West, um, that's beautiful. And so there's fruits uh, that, that are a mix. I mean, Christendom is always a mix of Babylon and the kingdom of God. And it, you just get, you get the both end. You get the wheat and the tares, like Jesus said, the sheep and the goats. You get the mix. So that is way too long and rambly of an answer is what you get when I'm riffing. I'm sorry. But my no, point I is, I think we need to... I. I I am able to sleep so much better at night because I do not view it as my responsibility to save America from social decline. I want to contribute to the common good of America. I want to pay my taxes. I want to keep my front yard clean. I want to obey the laws and volunteer and, you know, all the stuff. Mm -hmm. But I view it as my responsibility to participate, to co-work with Christ for the formation of a new community of peace and justice and love mm -hmm. that will one day rule over the universe. And I love to ask, I love to ask people the question, what is G what do you think Jesus is doing right now? Mm. Like not, what has he done? Not what will he do? What is Jesus doing right now as we speak? And I think based on my reading of the new Testament, I think that what Jesus is doing through his active work by the Spirit and his intercession before the Father and his legacy of example and teaching, 
I think what Jesus is doing is forming a new community or society of ultimately of love, if you had to put it into one word, of the fruit of the spirit, of courage and strength that comes through meekness and spiritual poverty, of courage, of wisdom, of fortitude, of harmony and togetherness and deep relational connectivity that one day can co-rule with him over the entire creation. Mm. So in my mind... (laughs) Formation is not one of the things Jesus is doing. It is what Jesus is doing. What do you mean by formation? formation? I mean the process of becoming a Christ-like person. Mm. And I think that when I say formation, I mean not just the formation of a person, but the formation of a community of persons that Mm. we call the church or the kingdom of God. So that's what I'm giving the energies of my life to. And I would love it if America experiences a renaissance and 30 years from now, as I'm moving into retirement and, you know, living off of those monies, I slip away every single month. I can just sit on my front porch and love the goodness of life on the West Coast of America. But if it's Book of Eli in 30 years, (laughs) I doubt it will be. But if it is... It doesn't change what I'm doing right now. I Mm. want to Mm. be a part of an alternative community of peace and love and justice. And so that's where my energies go. That's what I care about. There's more than enough to worry about on the church side of America than the wider, you know, saving Western civilization kind of thing. So I'm not putting my energies in trying to save America or the nation state. Or I, I have opinions as a citizen, but I hold them all very loosely. Because um, as the San Diego band once said, I pledge allegiance to a kingdom without borders. <laughs> and uh, that's so, it. So good. I, yeah, I think, of, like you said, Paul, in the first century, um, you know, he's not trying to redeem the Roman Empire. He's saying things like, this present world is, is passing. It's passing, and the yeah. kingdom the kingdom is advancing through the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of the Father into the and He's warning heart. people of living for the kingdom that's passing away. Yeah, and, and and as He plants churches with that mindset, you know, there's a couple centuries later, Christianity changes the world. Yeah, it, and it actually by the power of the Spirit and the you know, providence of God, and it actually it actually becomes the little, the, the good leaven. It becomes the yes. good leaven. But there you is know. such an interesting thing where the Christian movement changed the world, what it did for women's rights, children's rights, the abolition of slavery from early in its tradition, all true. And the Roman Empire fell apart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Dark Ages is mostly a secular enlightenment reframing right. of history. So there weren't actually dark ages, but the Roman empire did not go from glory to glory. It, you know, and it did was beset by wars and economic disaster. And Rome went from what's the stat 2 million people to 50,000 or something crazy, like something nuts. Um, Google that later. But so Christianity changed the world and Rome died. Yeah. Like every empire before and after. And, Ours isn't dead yet just because it's the one that's here <laughs> now. Yeah, America. I mean, ours, and, and, and death doesn't mean Book of Eli. So Ross Duthat's written a beautiful book called The Decadent Society, and he argues, it's really, it's interesting, he basically argues that Western civilization is, is dying, but he yeah. argues that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to Book of Eli or, you know, Antifa's going to take over the West Coast or whatever. Uh, one of his hallmarks that you know, he has a couple of hallmarks of like, this is what it looks like at the end of a civilization. One is decadence, just extreme apathetic luxury, just people, you know, just eating out and enjoying life and watching TV. It's Wally kind of stuff. Another is nostalgia. So he started as a film critic and he writes about the death of Hollywood. And now it's just rerun after rerun and remake after remake and Marvel 219 and Star Wars just selling toys to kids based on nostalgia. That's actually, that's actually what the end of Western civilization looks like. 
Disney and remakes. It's be- beautiful, yeah. And he gets to the end and he basically says, I think he has two or three options of where do we go from here. One is basically the Visigoths. So China or somebody stronger than us comes in and conquers. The other, he has some uh, <laughs> mm. something. And the re- religious revival is his third one. And you're like, mm-hmm. uh, I hope for that one. So, I mean, you never know. That'd be beautiful. But either way, I mean, I think the key is what I see in Paul and his relationship toward the empire, there's an extraordinary peacefulness in him. Mm-hmm. And I've been replaced with nothing to do with your questions about the Bible or the culture wars, but I've been reflecting a lot on what uh, Jacques Philippe, who's a spiritual writer I adore, what he calls peace of heart. And in his kind of view of Christian spirituality, maintaining a heart that is peaceful, calm, detached from worldly outcomes, Mm. abandoned and surrendered to Jesus, okay with suffering if it comes, and yet full of faith, hope, and love, that is preeminent in the, in the discipleship, the task of a disciple. Gosh, I so want to come I back. The, I want, I, the I main thing come, I would focus on this year is peace of heart. So I really want to Keep come back on, at, at, at the peace. end. That is a gift that you're giving to the church and you're practicing the way and formation curriculum that you're developing. I want to come back to that. I want to end on that. Um, but this is, so I, I want to ask you kind of a, uh, Fun challenge question. What's one part of the Bible that you, John Mark, are still losing sleep over? This is a biblical literacy series, so um, this is a fun one. But what makes it fun, what makes it meaningful, isn't just that question. It's the second part. What do you do about the hard stuff? Um, You know, when you lose sleep over a portion of Scripture, uh, what's the faithful, God-honoring thing to do that you do (laughs) at that point Mm. with that? Yeah. Um, so, um, it's a two-parter. I just finished reading Deuteronomy. Um, I did the read through the Bible in a year thing, starting when I was, I think, seven. In my family, there was a rule, no Bible, no breakfast. Like, we were not allowed to eat breakfast until we read our Bible. And that was, like, old-school evangelical, not read through the Bible in a year. None of this lazy, like, Old Testament in two years nonsense. It was the whole right. Bible. Genesis to Revelation. So I did that from seven till about 40. And then the last few years, um, under massive guilt and shame, I have stopped reading through the whole scripture simply because my experience of scripture now is so much more slow and prayerful. And I just can't read that much scripture um, and read it at the slow pace that I want to engage with it. Mm. So I've been more selective in my Old Testament reading. I still read the New Testament every year. Um, So, you know, it seems that the scriptures that Jesus was most immersed in, and we just based on quotation in his teaching, which isn't necessarily an accurate representation, but was Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and Isaiah. And that could just be because he understood his sense of identity and mission primarily from these three very messianic parts of the Bible. He could have actually, his personal favorite was Hosea or Leviticus or whatever. But Jesus is constantly quoting Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the Psalms. So I want to spend the bulk of my time in the Old Testament in those three books. And the Psalms, for me, have always been and continue to be the center of my life with God, my prayer life. I, 365 days a year, you find my day beginning in the Psalms. So I just finished Deuteronomy, and I think there isn't, I, mean, I don't want to sound glib, there isn't a part of the Bible that keeps me up at night. I feel very peaceful about the questions. There's lots of questions I still have about the Bible. And there are times when reading the Bible troubles me much more than it comforts me. And sometimes it troubles me just because it activates a part of me that doesn't want to hear, you know, Jesus' teachings on money or fidelity in marriage or forgiveness or gentleness. Some of these things just rub me the wrong way. You know, I'd rather just Mm -hmm. listen to the Daily Stoic and go be an alpha male or whatever um, (laughs) than follow the way of Christ. But sometimes it it troubles me because it doesn't, the, the portrayal of God, I struggle to map the portrayal of God over into my experience of God in prayer. And so in Deuteronomy, there are places where God is far more emotionally portrayed as more emotionally volatile than um, 
the God that I experience every morning in a contemplative kind of quiet prayer. And when I pray to God in the morning, and by pray, I don't mean ask God for things, though I attempt to do that at times during my day. But when I sit in the quiet before God, morning by morning, the God that I experience by the Holy Spirit is an experience of wordless, pure, mediated love and compassion and gentleness. And just the the love that I experience coming toward the Trinity, from the Trinity, being poured out by the Father through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, into my inner man. I mean, it, I don't have even, I don't have words for the level of tenderness and kindness that I experience morning by morning and all of my sin when I was a jerk to my wife the night before or yelled at my teenagers or I'm you know, went to bed lustful and woke up thinking about crap I don't need that I want to buy. I mean, it's very broken. The love, I struggle to, um, to sync up my experience of God with some of the portrayals of God in Deuteronomy. So even finishing Deuteronomy yesterday morning, I'm, I'm anal- analytical part of my brain is like, all right, what is God saying something here? And what is Moses speaking on behalf of God? And that part, right. I could get to a way of reading the Bible that is still orthodox, but that's what Mo- that's Moses. Moses is really frustrated with you. Moses is the parent to the rebellious teenage kids and he's pissed right now and he's getting screwed because of them. And so he's passing on God's message, but his resentment is bleeding through. Mm-hmm. What's that? And, and I think there's a view of scripture that is orthodox that gives space for Moses' frustration to come off the page. And what is, no, that, that is God. That is God's word. What is cultural? Uh, you know, some of it is just I'm a very sensitive, millennial, West Coast kind of person. You go to New York, and there are deeply godly people that I would experience as, like, rude. But it's just, like, how people are in New mm-hmm. Jersey or Israel's that way. Like I remember being in Israel, like the the harshness and, and with a joy and a love and a communal sense, but there's like a choleric, yeah. like there's an edge to it, man. That all of a yeah. sudden I actually loved being there because it made what I experienced as the harsh sayings of Jesus in that context. Like, no, that's just how that's <laughs> how that's how people talk in Jerusalem. You know, it reminds me in New York. It reminds me, I have I drive a Mercedes Sprinter van. It's a you know oh, that know. giant it's European amazing. van, and and one of the cheapest places to get it fixed is this like somewhat uh, kind of dingy garage with a bunch of Eastern European men that are like, what are, what are you bringing this for? And and I bring in the Sprinter, and they see the brakes. They're like, why do you drive it like this? Just like. <laughs> Totally judging my character, like blunt, direct, zero customer service, and but but they're like, you know, that's they're doing their thing. That's normal. Yeah, so I think that's you know, there my my analytical brain can find ways of interpreting the biblical passages, and I do think that there are ten x more passages about God's extraordinary kindness in the Old Testament than about his harshness. The problem is the brain has a 14 to 1 negativity bias. So we key in on the few stories where God brings judgment, gets angry, pronounces a curse, and our brain, you know, we're like flypaper for negativity. We focus on that and we ignore all these other moments where God, the compassion of God is extraordinary on the page, which is the default setting of God all through the Old Testament. But it's not the, we don't have a problem with that. So nobody goes around saying, I cannot believe that God forgave Jonah. What, why would God do such a, nobody, right. nobody's, Nineveh, nobody's mad at God that he spared the oppressors. Um, you know, but everybody's mad that, you know, God made the plant go away from Pouty Jonah. And you're like, we don't yeah. understand. We miss a lot. So all that to say, I think that that's probably still, you know, a lot of the laws around women and slaves and such, I think, have been so helped by good theologians' work around theology of accommodation has been so helpful for me to, like, oh, to, to read those and not feel troubled by them the way I used to be and to understand them in their cultural context. But do, do you have it's like more a, the emotional aspect. Do you have, like, a 15-second uh, definition of a theology of accommodation for the listeners? Um, a theology of accommodation would be God. I mean, gosh, ask a smarter person than me. It would be God 
meeting people where they are and a spiritual realism about the cultural milieu they're in and then slowly bringing them forward. So let me give you, I was actually really struck by this again last night. Uh, we're going through this crazy story where my wife had this dream uh, a couple of weeks ago about meeting a woman who's going to come to faith in Jesus, dreamed her name, dreamed some very specific things about her. And then we, she ran into this woman and this woman came up to her at church, not a Christian, and basically came up to my wife and said, I want to pray to open my life to God. And it was the, it literally was the woman from the dream, had the same name from the woman of the dream, same life wow. circumstances. And, you know, one of the profound differences in Israel, in uh, LA to Portland that we're noticing so far is Portland is far more secular than LA was. And we're realizing LA, like Portland, people say they're spiritual, but not religious, but really they're just secular and like yoga. In LA, people are like a wider swath of the population is genuinely spiritual, but not religious, mm -hmm. as in like in relationship with spirits that mm -hmm. are not the Holy Spirit. And it's just been honestly kind of shocking to my wife and I. So this woman has zero Christian background, none, not from America, zero Christian background, has been medium, spiritist, very involved in all of the stuff, is so beautiful and just had a conversion experience to Jesus and was just saying that she's, you know, only doing tarot cards for herself now because she wants to do them with Jesus. And oh, there was no malice <laughs> in the heart. I mean, it's just like, yeah. she is brand new to all of this. Yeah. And long story short, God had spoken to her in a dream about how she would be going to get mushrooms from this person and she would meet a healer when she went there who would bring her to light energy. And that was my wife. And then she met my wife. So it's a long, long story. My point is, I just write, how amazing is this? God is so speaking kind. to a woman in her dreams who's not a Christian, who has no Christian background, who's going to a spiritist to get psilocybin or whatever. And God is meeting this woman where she's at. And that doesn't mean that God is therefore pro hallucinogenics or tarot cards or spiritualist medium healers. It means that's the world that this woman is in and is coming out of. And God is meeting her there, you know? All right. Beautiful. And um, it's just so beautiful the way God accommodates and meets us. He does this with us and he does it with Israel. And we like it when he does it with us. And we're troubled by it when we read about him doing it with the whole nation of people in Deuteronomy. But in a world where women were bought and sold as property, right. accommodation would look like God saying, yes, but you have to set this limit and this price and you can't. And if you divorce her, you don't want her, then you have to send her away with money and she needs to be allowed to remarry. We read that as patriarchal hor horror. But in context, that was radical yeah. human rights, unheard of. And it's not that God thinks women are valued less than men or whatever, um, or that it's okay to buy. But it's that God is meeting a people where they are at yeah. and bringing them forward. And this is what Stepping God does with in. us. He's stepping yep. into their mess as their mess is, kind of like what he did in Jesus. Kind of like what he does every single day with Evan Wickham and John Mark Comer. Amen. <laughs> so, next question. What, what are maybe one or two, you can just do one, part of the Bible that you've shifted on in the last decade or even decade and a half? Mm, if we have decade and a half, I would say... Man, I don't think I want to get into this because it's a long can of worms. I would say my understanding of what the gospel is has been radically reoriented. And then on a positional issue, I would say my thinking around hell um, uh, toward, I think I have become softly convinced of a conditional immortality view, which is the view that uh, when scripture says that you're destroyed, it means you're destroyed, not that you are in eternal conscious torment burning in a fire pit, um, but that death means death and that the opposite of eternal life is not eternal torture, it's eternal death. And um, that has really changed the way I read many of the judgment passages, changed the way I think about the justice of those um, that choose not to follow Jesus. 
And it's just, I think, pretty significantly changed my thinking about hell. Hmm. I was really impacted by many, many years ago, more than 15 years ago, by N.T. Wright's work around, he doesn't use the word heaven, but what he would call life after life after death. And getting away from a Platonic, Platonic kind of evangelical, you go up to the cloud city and play harps for forever, to a biblical view of the renewal of all creation and resurrection of the dead and coming back in a body to the earth to rule and reign over a new society. And um, I was shocked. How could Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, historic Christians be so wildly off in their view of what happens in the future? And like mm. I was just, sh- they weren't like a little off. We were like, no. not even on the map, like not even close to what scripture is teaching about the future. And so that then got me thinking, if we're that off about the future of the righteous or followers of Jesus, are we just as off about those that are not followers of Jesus? Mm. Um, wow. And that, that got me wondering about other perspectives and I didn't come to it from the more liberal, God could not possibly be that mean angle. I came to it more from the trying to make sense of the biblical data yeah. angle. What, what, what does scripture actually say and what have we imported onto scripture through Christendom cultural yeah, that, heritage? That book you mentioned, Surprised by Hope, I think it's the first, like the first time we hung out, like in 08 or something, you gave me that book. Like the first oh, year we were... I, I, that book changed my life. I remember where I was when I read the first couple of chapters. The back of a beach house in Pacific City. On my, I, I remember lying on the ground, reading that book, having my mind just melted. You know, yeah. it's sort of been early 2000s. Changed my whole spirituality. Yeah, it's true. Um, uh, it's diametrically opposed to the view kind of that I absorbed explicitly, implicitly that my future is disembodied when actuality it's yeah. ex- it's it's extremely more embodied, embodied mm-hmm. more embodied yeah. and my future is somewhere else versus my future is renewed earth here here uh, yeah. it, like there's so like not just um not just wrong but opposite in many ways yeah um, so which uh, goes back to our opening you know conversation question about where does our hope lie it is for a society on this earth, um, but mm. I don't. I don't think it's one called America or England or Germany or Brazil. I think it's or Nigeria. I think it's one called the New Jerusalem. Yeah, and that that idea is it's summed up in Jesus's trial, right? Like he said, you know, like if my, if my kingdom's not, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, but my kingdom's not of. And N.T. Wright capitalizes on that sentence, right? Like he's like. Uh, we have misinterpreted that line yes. to, to imagine a heaven that is so not of that it's actually something other than the world. Uh, but the kingdom is not of the world means it's sourced in the presence of God, but it is absolutely for this world. Yeah. In the same way that yeah. the Lord is for our bodies, First Corinthians 6. Mm. Like he's for our bodies. He's for the world. Um, anyways, that, yeah. And that, so, that's that, such an interesting line, too. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. <laughs> so, I mean, Jesus, which is so interesting because there's so many Christians that want to fight, both uh, like literal fighting on behalf of the United States military and killing people, and want to fight the culture wars and fight on Twitter. And um, it's really interesting. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. But he's saying it's not. <laughs> so they don't fight, yeah. they die. Hmm. And self-surrender and self-sacrificial love. Hmm. Oh, man. Well, we are coming to the last couple questions, and I am going to get a little more personal with... Uh, I know that the last two were personal, but this one is... Maybe you can... This is part of your story, like you're a pastor's kid like me, and uh, and then you became a pastor as a kid... <laughs> Kind of, and uh, <laughs> and 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 you know you got your degree in Bible and theology, and now, and then you became a professional Bible teacher guy, and and now Bible is a central part of your job. It's it's at the center of your thesis for how humans flourish as they are formed in the image of Christ, uh, the Creator among us, like has invited us to be formed. So the Bible is 
like your job. And, and yet, the Bible is also like the location where the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit want to meet with you as a loved son and act on you and in you and through you in intimacy. So, I'm curious, maybe I'm strange, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, pastor's kid too, but I think a lot of Christians wonder, man, how do I shift from, you know, reading the Bible well, biblical literacy, you know, academics, to shift to, oh, this is a, this is a vibrant space that God has opened for us to encounter Him. And how do we make that shift? How have you made that shift? Maybe in years past and versus how you do now. From Bible as your job to Bible as this space where you encounter the Trinity. Um, I know it's not the only space you encounter the Trinity, but how do you think of that? Maybe complete my sentences that are incomplete here. How do you, how do you think of this? Oh, there's so many things there to think about. I... What does that look like for you when you're making that shift? I mean, it's been nonlinear and it's been messy because I grew up in the kind of evangelical world that was built around the assumption that as a person's knowledge of the Bible increases, their spiritual maturity will increase along with it. Mm. So under that assumption, which I never even questioned, you therefore on top of that assumption would, would architect a church model and a discipleship model that was all about teaching the Bible, learning the Bible, studying the Bible, arguing about the Bible, podcasting about the Bible. Not, and that, I'm not saying that's bad. The problem I ran into is my ability to learn the Bible far outpaced my ability to obey the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and not by a little bit, <laughs> by like 10 lifetimes worth. I think you, and, just, I think you just summarized PK syndrome, pastor, <laughs> pastor's kid syndrome, in the most concise way I've ever heard. Uh, I don't think there's anything to do with being a pastor's kid. That's just being a growing up as an evangelical. I, mean, I literally grew up in the West Coast Bible Church movement. I went to Los Gatos Bible Church and then Santa Cruz Bible Church and then Cedar Mill Bible Church. You know, um, you can tell what we put at the center of our <laughs> discipleship model and spirituality, you know. And, um, and I'm really grateful for that foundation. The, the problem is if the telos of the spiritual journey is to become a person of love. I mean, Jesus had that incredible line. I was haunted by this uh, many years ago. I, was, I rarely had this. I've never had this happen any other time. I'm literally preaching Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And I have this borderline out-of-body experience where I almost watch myself up there delivering my notes. And I am struck and terrified by this insight I have to the text as I'm teaching it. And I've spent time in it where I realized, you know, Jesus' line is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, immersing them in the Trinitarian reality we call God, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And it hit me. I, as a Bible teacher, I do not teach people to obey what Jesus has commanded. I teach people what Jesus has commanded. Oh, wow. And that's not the same thing. In business parlance, it's the difference between the what and the how. It is one thing to exegete Matthew 6 or Philippians 4 and say, hey, Evan Wickham, Jesus commands you to not worry about tomorrow. Take no thought for tomorrow. Don't be anxious. Trust in God. Beautiful. Here's what the Greek means. Here's the context. Here's Paul's context. Here's our context. Now, this week, go, don't worry. How's that working for you? It's another thing Gosh. to teach people in an age of political polarization and noise pollution and urban, you know, inequality and pain and suffering and digital distraction and nonstop anxiety in a 24 news cycle. How do we become deeply peaceful, non-anxious, free surrender people in a, the mayhem of the world we call home? That's, that's a different sermon. Yeah. And, um, 
And and they both go together, you know. I've been so impacted by. Were you going to say something? Because I'm no, talking way just, too much. I was just saying, yeah, it's a different sermon. I'm thinking how it is as a sermon prepper. I'm like, man, yes. Working back in my archives in my head, I got to redo that. <laughs> I got to redo that. Oh well, yeah. I mean, my preaching now is nothing like it was for most of my ministry because I no longer believe that most you know modern preaching relies, even though most preachers would say this is anathema because it doesn't fit their theological rubric, but most modern preaching relies on willpower to change. So when I teach on spiritual formation, I talk about how um, with small changes, we can approach them directly, but almost all major changes, which for Christian discipleship, (laughs) most of the changes that need to happen in us, we can only approach them indirectly. So a small change, like, hey, I want to read a psalm the first thing in the morning rather than read the news, or I want to cuss a little bit less, or I want to whatever. You can just choose to do that. You can just say, I'm going to start tomorrow morning by reading a psalm. Most people, not all people, most people have that capacity in our willpower. But something like, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, or I'm no longer going to lust after women, or I'm going to honor my parents even though they deeply wronged me and were those changes tend to be far beyond the capacity of our willpower. And even though evangelicals, like the the working theory of change that I imbibed growing up in evangelicalism, though no pastor would ever have said this, and if I said this to them, they would preach me a, a sermon against me. But this is what I imbibed. Information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. Information, you need to learn the truth of the Bible, Right. Plus inspiration. There's a romanticism in evangelicalism has to go into this because revivalist movement has to go into the heart, mm-hmm. has to go mm-hmm. from the head, mm-hmm. 12 inches of the heart, the longest journey of da, 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 da. You got to feel it and then go do it. And they would put cliches on it, like in the power of the Holy Spirit, rely on God. You can't do it. Only God can. But that never moved beyond cliche to practice. Nobody ever told me how to rely on the spirit. Mm-hmm. It was just go rely on the spirit. Which I, I agree that we that our only hope for salvation, for change, for deep spiritual maturity is the Spirit of God. But how do we draw on the Spirit's energies to change? The, and I didn't know. And so that just left me trying to go do the Bible by willpower, which only works on very small changes in your life. It does not work on any of the deeper stuff that goes back to our family of origin our trauma, our pain, our deep personality, shadow side. Dr. Todd Hall from Rosemead is like one of my new favorite Christians right now, and I'm just eating up his work. And he does all the science on left brain, right brain, on the difference between explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge. So explicit knowledge is, you know, we have, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. And most of even, most of Christian theology is explicit knowledge. It's kind of a conceptual, linear, idea-based. There's neat categories. Implicit knowledge, uh, a common example would be you may have had a family of origin experience where your dad was distant or your mom abandoned the family when you were a kid or you were orphaned or your family was cold and emotionally unavailable that created an implicit map in your body's way of relating that if you I you were to, if I were to vocalize it to you you'd say I know that's not true but your body believes that intimacy with people is not safe trustworthy or reliable mm-hmm. and that you cannot trust other people to hold your deep emotional pain you need to go into yourself and be okay by yourself now you might not even realize that you believe that because your explicit part of your brain might think that's hogwash, but your body believes that. And when you come to pray to God, you can believe all the right Christian theologies at an explicit level, but the end of the day, you know, the authors of The Relational Soul in their book on attachment theory and spiritual formation just have the simple catchphrase, how you relate is how you relate. If you can't be intimate with a father figure, then you can't expect to go to prayer and be intimate with the God we call Father. Mm. If you are scared of intimacy or avoidant of intimacy, then that is going to bleed over into your entire way of relating to God. How you relate to other people is how you relate to God, and so on and so forth. 
And the healing of our broken attachment filters happens both through God and through close Christian community, or not at all. So all that to say, what I realized was I can only do, preaching is mostly helpful with explicit knowledge. And, and Bible study is mostly helpful with explicit knowledge. And that is crucial. We need explicit knowledge. It is a both and, two sides, without one without the other, we're in trouble. We got to have both. But what I realized was this huge, giant dimension that was non-existent in the discipleship model I grew up with was how do we heal our implicit knowledge? One way of thinking about all of discipleship is bringing our implicit knowledge that is mostly broken by our life and our trauma and our families of origin and our personalities in the world and the sins we've committed and the habits we've gotten sucked into and our compulsions and our addictions and Netflix. How do we bring our implicit knowledge up and into integration and alignment with our explicit knowledge as it comes to us, the New Testament of life in the kingdom of God with the Trinity of love? So, and this is where we come back to what I said we'd come back to, which is uh, the spiritual formation stuff that you're developing and disseminating. Um, it seems to be part of the answer to the last question that you just gave is the in, the shift towards intimacy was directly connected to you um, <laughs> connecting the dots between Jesus' commands and then our command to teach people to obey Jesus' commands. <laughs> how do exactly. we how do we actually yep. tap into yep. intimacy with God that affects our implicit knowledge and unlocks intimacy with God in us? Which, which us. basically brings you to contemplative spiritual disciplines, contemplative Christian practice, and deep, 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 deep community. Not just church attendance, deep community. Yeah, so Those are basically last... the two places you end up at what were they if again? you want to be deeply changed. Some form of... Uh, Dr. Todd Hall actually is one of the few professors I know that has actually tried to imply empirical research to Christian spirituality. He would argue the three like proven, empirically verifiable things that produce deep transformation in Christians are contemplative practice, suffering, and deep relationships. Mm. Those are basically the three primary spaces of deep transformation. So Suffering, we don't necessarily go out and do or sign up for. It comes sure. to us and we want to respond to it. So really, if you begin to say, all right, I have this biblical knowledge. I listen to the Bible Project. blows my mind. It's amazing. And I, now I want to like become the kind of person that I read about in Scripture. It's going to take you to contemplative Christian spirituality, disciplines like Lectio Divina, silence, solitude, fasting, Sabbath meditation, and it's going to take you beyond Sundays, as good and important as they are, into you and one or two other people, confession of sin, processing your stories, sharing your burdens, processing your emotional pain together, doing life together over a long period of time. Yeah. It's going to take you into those two places, because yeah. that's, that's, that's where the deep change really happens. So, to, Okay, so I, I had an ending question, but I think... I think it can, it can mine that a little deeper. And uh, what basically, when you look at what you're doing, the work that you're doing, uh, teaching teachers how to lead people into deep relationship with God and one another so that the church reawakens into uh, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus together. What is making you excited as you're working on this, as you look out at the church and the responses? or lack of response, what's making you nervous? So, two, <laughs> both sides of the coin. Like, when you look at the church and spiritual formation, when you look at the work that you're doing and, and, and how it's being received and meted out in the world through the church, mm. what, what, is, what is getting you most excited about it? And, and then what's something that's making you nervous mm. uh, with the church's relationship with spiritual formation? So, maybe... That's what you can riff on for the final mm. part of this podcast, just because it's like a variation of the question I normally end with. Normally, it's just kind of nondescript. Like, in general, what are you excited about about Christianity? Yeah. But specifically, Christianity's relationship with mining itself for mm. implicit knowledge mm. to be exposed in vulnerable relationships for the yeah. glory of the Father through the church. So... Mm. 
what's making you excited and, and maybe a challenge that's maybe born mm. out of nervousness. Oh. Nervousness might be the wrong word, but. Well, you know I, I mean. know what's making me exciting, excited. I mean, I, I came of age in a real generational shift inside, you know, what you want to call it, the American church or evangelicalism or whatever you want to call it. And um, the as I discovered, all right, uh, Ruth Haley Barton has this line, I had come to the end of what the typical evangelical discipleship model had to offer. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking, yes, I remember that moment where I did all the things you are to do. And I was still so far away from a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the fruit of the spirit. What now? And um, as I discovered what comes next, it brought me to spiritual disciplines. It brought me to Sabbath. It brought me to contemplative prayer. It brought me to table community. It brought me to deep relationship. It brought me to confession of sin. It brought me to emotional life. It brought me to the inner work. It brought me to dealing with my past. It brought me to all these places. And it didn't fix me, but it brought me forward in my transformation, though I still have a long ways to go, significantly forward. Um, many of the areas where I was finding the greatest both intimacy with God and transformation and healing of my own person were areas that the evangelical subculture I grew up in was highly resistant against and would have lambasted as evil or dangerous or, quote, not biblical or whatever, which is not true. And so what I love is that that paranoia and fear of contemplative Christian spirituality and history has turned into a ravenous appetite for, mm. you know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's just such mm. a burning people are so stressed and exhausted. They, and you know, they've been condult they've been conditioned by a mindfulness culture and a therapeutic culture and in some good ways, actually to view, I think spirituality through a more holistic lens, less Cartesian lens. So I love that. I love the hunger that I see that people that want to learn about contemplative practice that are not satisfied with just church attendance and listening to sermons, but want to be around tables and want to be in close relationships and want to do inner work and want to talk about their shadow and want to go into their family. Like I love it, love it, love it, love it. Because I think that's where deeply formed people come. And I'm just so excited, and what a miraculous time to be alive! What a time to be alive, Evan Wickham. We just get to, <laughs> wow, what a we. I mean, no other generation in Christian history has been able for, to sit down at their phone or their laptop and Google and 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 receive the best of the Christian tradition, the best of the people of Jesus from every era of the history. Every, I mean, just yesterday, I'm reading the Philokali, I'm reading a fourth century Syrian Eastern Orthodox contemplative writer, and I'm reading a neuroscientist from Harvard, and I'm reading a theolo- It's just amazing. We have access to all of this, and we can just have this incredibly broad, holistic, it's just like 2,000 years of treasure that we just can't even possibly act. It's just amazing. I think what worries me is if my parents' generation were way on the side of we're just going to study the Bible and not pay attention to formation, there's been such a dramatic flip rather than holding to the Bible and adding in contemplative spirituality, emotional life, the therapeutic learnings. It's mm. been almost of a change uh-huh. And so now it's like, hey, you you need both explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge. You need the moral framework of the New Testament, or you're just going to go off the rails, and you're not you're just going to be utterly confused about what it even means to flourish as a human being. And right. so there's been yeah. a lot of people that have thrown out explicit knowledge and just gone into implicit knowledge, if you want to use that language. Yeah. And um, then uh, you know it's been shocking to me. Like, let's take the egalitarian complementarian debate. That used to be a debate about how to interpret scripture. Right. It it's is still, now it, it, a debate in some ways. about patriarchy versus oh, for you know, sure. human rights. My point is No, that's true. Let's let's set aside who's right, who's wrong, what's the right interpretation of scripture. When young people approach that I'm not talking about scholars and I'm not talking about I'm talking about when the average twenty five year old, thirty five year old oh, approaches sure. that first off, they're not even asking the question. 
They're just assuming, well, this is what we know is right, therefore the Bible must be teaching this. And unfortunately, the same is true of human sexuality and gender. I'm shocked how many people adopt a view of the body, of marriage, of sexuality, of gender. It is wildly anti-Christian, anti-body, anti-Christian theology, and they've not read 19 books and pondered and surrendered to God and, and gone down the... They've just... I mean, it's shockingly lazy. And uh, the race debate in 2020 would not kind of kicked off at a national level, which was so beautiful. But it was a complex conversation to enter because many of the loudest voices were operating out of a metaphysical worldview based on French postmodernism that at its core is radically opposed to a Christian worldview. Though at a symptom level, they would both agree, you know, oppression and injustice are bad. They're coming from just diametrically opposed worldviews. And I was shocked at how few Christians slow down for 15 minutes to just ask simple questions like, has racism been a problem before for the people of Jesus? How did previous generations deal with it? What does the Bible say about it? Are there any examples in church history where Christians dealt with racism in a beautiful way? What can we learn from them? Is there any example? Is, is the New Testament, does the New Testament, Jew and Gentile, major dominant theme, arguably two of Paul's entire letters, what can it teach? What can Ephesians teach us? What can Galatians teach us? What can Romans teach us about how to navigate race relations today? Those questions were like not even asked. And so that's what worries me is like, man, if we let go of Christian orthodoxy, of explicit knowledge of the Bible, the Bi- I'm an integrated, uh, integrated approach to discipleship. So Jesus and the New Testament set the what for me. I want to become this kind okay. of person that I see in the life of Jesus and the yeah. writings of the New Testament. And I want to do anything I possibly can to become the kind of person that can obey the commands of James and Peter and John. How I get to that, I'm like, I'll do EMDR, I'll do cold <laughs> yeah. plunges, I'll do therapy, I'll go to secular group therapy, I'll go running, I'll try anything that is morally within the bounds. You know, I'm not going to do certain drugs and stuff like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do any drugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certain drugs, I don't know where that came from, or whatever. Um, I'm not going to do any hallucinogenics or whatever, but anything... I'm an integrated approach, so I'm happy to, if I want to become a person who's less worrisome and more peaceful, I will pray and I'll do Lectio Divina, and I am on a medication right now for my heart that makes my heart rate slower to calm my nervous system, and I do cardio five days a week on Peloton, and I do cold plunges, and I try to walk once a day, and I'm in therapy, and I'm, and I'm trying to bird watch. Like, I'll do all of the things. But my telos is not set by Instagram or some celebrity or some – my telos is set by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the writings of the New Testament. That's that's my paradigm. That's what I'm living into. Um, So I I think we need the both and. Uh, An integrated approach to to a Christian New Testament vision of human flourishing. So beautiful and inspiring. Thank you so much, my friend, for being here for being present to our community. And I loved, I, I, I love, I think you're, I, I mean, I love your teaching, but there's something special about the ramble. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we did ramble with a capital R today. I so, hope you have somebody no, with a, a lot one. of time on their hands to edit this down. This will be um, unedited. This will be posted as is. And well, Parkdale, sending sending love to you. I love you as a community. It's been too long. I adore your pastor, Heaven Wickham, as I call him, and <laughs> uh, I, I I adore him. I miss you. Sending oh, miss so you much too. love, especially yeah. on this hey, year's sixth anniversary. Yes, happy Christmas and, and happy birthday. And but in January, we're working. I don't know how commonologist is or how set it is, but January we're working on you coming to Park Hill. Mm-hmm. The end of January. We're trying to make it happen. happen. So the last Sunday of January may be, chances are high, that John Mark will come and do a book launch night at Park Hill. And we'll have, you know, tickets can reserve and stuff. It's not a church service. It's in the evening. It's hosted in the building. It'll be a lecture night and it'll be beautiful. Thank you in advance for trying to make it to San Diego. I can't wait. I can't wait. But you got to take me to that vegan dumplings place because it's so good. Oh, gosh. Oh, Underbelly. 
Yes. They have vegan. It's very not vegan restaurant. Ba- but sorry, bao bun. What, whatever it is, we, we got to go there. They have some great vegetarian options. Um, and with that, this concludes not just this interview, but the seven-part series, um, God Breathe Interviews to enrich our journey through what it means to read and trust the scriptures as God has brought them to us to reveal his, his heart mm. and his son, Jesus Christ, to us. Beautiful. Um, I lo- and we ended the series with, you know, <laughs> the ultimate goal of reading the scripture well is to let it read us and yeah. let the Holy Spirit read, read our implicit knowledge and bring it to the surface in alignment with Jesus. Yeah. So, that, what a great way to end. Couldn't think of a better way. And so, church family, mm. um, may our Lord bless you and keep you this Sunday. Mm. Advent begins, so have a blessed Advent uh, journey with Jesus, also waiting for Jesus uh, all the way up to Christmas. So, uh, may the Lord bless and keep you. Grace and peace. <laughs>